Just a few weeks ago in December, I finished reading a book uh, published back in 1997. Uh, the book describes the 1991 nor'easter, better known as the perfect storm. Uh, it affected the northeastern United States and Canada. Uh, one boat, uh, the Andrea Gale, a 72-foot commercial fishing vessel with a crew of six, was at the epicenter of that storm out somewhere in the North Atlantic. Uh, the six-man crew and Gloucester, Massachusetts vessel uh, perished at sea, uh, never to be seen. Uh, the, the ship, uh, the, the men aboard uh, were gone. The book describes how the storm was formed by the convergence of three different weather systems, a cold front, a low-pressure area, and hurricane grace. Uh, these three systems eventually collided and merged off the coast of New England, creating the perfect conditions for this powerful and destructive storm. In the book, uh, Sebastian uh, Younger, the author, uh, he writes this. He says, the waves uh, are up to 70 feet. A 70-foot wave has an angled face of well over 100 feet. The sea state has reached levels that no one on the boat and a, f and f a few, few people on earth have ever seen. The men that were on that boat had been in life-threatening storms, but they had never been in a storm that the waves were non-negotiable, is what they call them. That the ship that you're in is not sufficiently strong enough to endure those waves. The three conditions... <laughs> For that perfect storm in 1991 were this cold front, a low pressure area, and hurricane grace. Today, as we come back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, there is a, a perfect storm, if you will, uh, in the heart of Saul. There are conditions inside of him that are causing destruction and evil and murder, and all kinds of, of, of terrible things. And we're going to read of some of this today. Sarah has just read some of it. The three conditions for the perfect storm in his heart, in the heart of Saul, uh, were popularity, uh, power, and jealousy. Uh, these things have taken over uh, his life. He wants the popularity that has shifted from him to David. And so this has made him an incredibly jealous man. He wants to maintain the power that he already has. And these three things have combined uh, to be 
at the center of his life. God has been displaced. And, and these things are his functional God or his idols. Now, idols are usually a good things. And if we think about popularity and power, uh, we could see that these are actually uh, good things. If we think about our Lord, uh, was, was he popular? Say yes. He, he was popular. I mean, he could barely move around people trying to get to him. Thousands of, of, of people uh, wanting to be healed, uh, wanting to be fed, uh, wanting to be near him. Uh, did he have power? Yes, he had power. So you see, popularity and power are not necessarily bad things, but when you or I are excessively attached to them, or Saul is excessively attached to them, along with the jealousy of this, this person, David, um, it, it has created this perfect storm inside of his heart and his life. Again, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller write, idols are usually good things that good things turned into ultimate things because we look to them to give us the significance and security that can come only from God. And this is what has happened to Saul. He is on a dangerous course. He has taken a few steps. I mean, we could look back and see where he was seeking God and blessing God and anointed by the Spirit. So th this wasn't his life mission to be where he is. But he started to take steps of compromise and lying and moving away. And now he is just full on in, 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 on the course of, of, of destruction, of evil, of murder. And he is, he is dangerous. And so the question, the angle I want to look at today's passage, which we're about to get into, the angle is uh, that I want to approach it is, is how does the Christ follower, how do you, how do I survive being near someone who is a perfect storm? Someone who is, is, is collecting others and there's, just, there's danger, there's damage, there's collateral evil in the wake of this person. How do we survive? How do we even thrive if possible when around someone like this. We're going to see a couple examples of this um, in today's passage. So let's hopefully have your Bibles open or your devices open. Hopefully your devices are, are silenced. But they're, uh, whatever you're using, you'll be able to track along with me. If you uh, don't have your Bible with you, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Or, or just Google uh, 1 Samuel 22. And we're going to pick it up here at verse 6. So Saul has been on the run. He's a fugitive. And, I'm sorry, David has been on the run. Uh, say, help him, Lord. Um, David has been on the run. He's a fugitive. And Saul is after him. And we might say David's been pretty successful at eluding the king, the murderous king who has this perfect storm going on inside of his, his life. So this is where we pick it up. Uh, David's been fleeing, been, been a fugitive. Saul is after him. Look at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, 
was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gabeah with all his officials and standing around him. With all his officials standing around him. Let's pause here for a moment. So the, the author here is giving us a, a powerful image. So he, he's sitting around the oval table in the office, if you will. He's in the West Wing with all of his leaders, but he has his spear in hand. So what the author is trying to communicate to us without using the word is this is one paranoid dude. This is a leader who is afraid. He's got his spear in hand, even though his guys are all around him. Verse 7. So Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Paraphrase. Will he give you the riches if you remain loyal to him the way I'm expecting you to remain loyal to me? This is not how kingship should be going among the people of God. But this is the man that Saul has become. A man of of bribery. A man of of nepotism. A man of, uh, of, of wanting loyalty to himself. And nothing else really matters. Look at verse 8. Is that why you have conspired against me? He's saying this to his, his men. Is this why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant, my son Jonathan, has incited my servant David to lie in wait for me as he does today. Now, the reader knows all of this is a lie. David isn't lying and trying to kill Saul, uh, even though I was confused and switched switched the names there at the beginning of the sermon. Everyone reading this book knows that it is Saul that is trying to kill David, that he is deluded, that he's fanciful, And he might even believe all that is going on because of this perfect storm of his excessive attachment to popularity and to power and to the jealousy that he has for God's spirit being upon David and David taking out the Philistine superpower and their man Goliath and the people singing his praises and the people looking to him as a leader and the people flocking to him. This has made him a guy who is completely and totally whacked out. So, he says this to all of his men, then come back to verse 9. But Dog the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, so this guy's distinguished from the rest of Saul's officials, the rest of his cabinet, if you will. And he says, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Now, if you haven't been here recently, Nob is kind of like the Jerusalem at this time, before Jerusalem gets set up as the central place of worship for God's people, ancient Israel. So Nob is where the priesthood and and the center place of worship is. And so so this this spy, one of his men, uh, Dog, uh, I've mentioned before, nobody names their children Dog. That's a good thing. This isn't the name that you want to name your son. Dog steps up, distinguishes himself from all the officials and says, I've seen him. I saw him go to Nob. 
Verse 10, Ahimelech required, inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Continuing on uh, in the text here. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. So he's got Ahimelech in front of him. And he responds very respectfully. He's in the presence of the king. Yes, my lord, is the way my translation has it. Verse 13. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so in so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Why have you conspired against me? So these are the charges, and he's asking him the question. Why have you done this? He throws a couple true things in here. He gave him the sword. He gave him bread. Those of you that were here, you know why he gave him bread. Because he was hungry. There's no conspiracy going on here. There's no threat to Saul's life. Ahimelech and David are not conspiring to, cons- to kill Saul. Saul is a paranoid guy. And so he asks him, why have you done these things? At the end of verse 13. Now before we look at Ahimelech's response, if you have been here, you might be thinking right now, well, what would his response be? If you haven't been here over the last few weeks and even few months, as we go back many chapters into 1 Samuel before we were uh, in the Christmas season and took a break from 1 Samuel, for those of you that weren't here, let me, let me kind of summarize what happened when David went to Nob. He's with no one. He has no army with him. He has no weapon with him, and he's hungry, and he lies to Ahimelech. Do you remember that? Remember what he said? He said, yeah, I mean, to paraphrase, he said, basically, I'm on a secret mission of the king. That's why I don't have the troops with me. That's why I'm dressed the way I am. That's why I don't have a sword. That's why I don't have any weapons. And so Ahimelech feeds him. Ahimelech gives him the sword that is rightfully his because he took out Goliath. He gives him Goliath's sword. He prays for him. So, so the reader at this point might be thinking, if, Himel, if Ahimelech is, is concerned for himself and he wants to be on the side of power, he wants to be on the side of the king, this might be a good time to say, hey, the king, yeah, um, there's no conspiracy going on here. Uh, you're confused about that. But David did come to me. He lied to me. He told me he was on a mission of yours. I gave him some food. And yeah, I prayed for him. You might think, if he's interested in himself, that that is how he would respond to this this question, this accusation that has some truth in it, but mostly is a lie, which is the way most lies tend to come out of us as humans. So let's look at how Ahimelech actually responds in verses 14 and 15. So Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? The king's son-in-law. He is reminding Saul that you gave your daughter to David. That's how they did it back then. You gave your daughter to him. He is loyal 
to you. What we have here is truth being spoken to power. He reminds King Saul that David is the captain of your bodyguard. (laughs) He's not conspiring to kill you. You enlisted him to play the harp and to protect you. That's the heart of David. He's highly respected in your household. Verse 15. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? The the implication here? Of course not. I've been praying for David as a faithful priest at Nob. I've been praying for Saul. I've been praying for the leaders of Israel. So of course I inquired for God for him. Of course I've prayed for him. Of course not. Uh, Of course that wasn't the first time. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family. Remember, Saul brought not only Ahimelech, but his whole family before him. For your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. I think what he's saying here at the end is just massive integrity. He, he, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think he might be thinking, Ahimelech, I don't know anything about a conspiracy. But in the, in the 0.001% chance that there's some kind of conspiracy going on here with David to take you out, I, I, I don't know anything about it. We see unbelievable integrity in the face of this storm that still has power, the storm of a man, Saul. He doesn't, he doesn't reveal that David lied to him. That, that just blows me away in this chapter. That just blows me away. He doesn't reveal that. Why doesn't he reveal that? He doesn't reveal that because that action is not substantive to the character of who David is. Is David a sinner? Yes. Is Ahimelech a sinner? Yes. Is David's lie indicative of the kind of man that he is, at least here at this point in 1 Samuel 22? No. So Ahimelech, instead of using this, instead of weaponizing this truth to protect himself and his family, he speaks truth to power to the storm. He has essentially forgotten himself. He has an other orientation here. And that other orientation, he is thinking primarily of the Lord, and he is thinking primarily of David. He is not thinking of himself And he is not thinking of his own family. So again, the framework that I'm coming at today's passage is how do you and I, a Christ follower, deal with someone who in them, there is some sort of perfect storm brewing. And I'm saying, we must be very careful not to get sucked into that storm. And Ahimelech does not get sucked into the storm. He shows courage and integrity, and he, by God's grace, is not thinking of himself. He's not thinking of himself. Uh, Tim Keller, again, writes this. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, 
And I want to interject here a humble person like Ahimelech. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. How interested Ahimelech is in David, the anointed one. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? Those thoughts are done away with with gospel humility. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. We see self-forgetfulness in Ahimelech as he is standing before the man who has power. Before the man, had he simply told the truth about what David did, would have very much protected him and his family. Especially if he'd gone the extra step and said, hey, I'm in, I'm in your camp. I, I, I'll, I'll be with you. Um, he, he did lie to me, and, and, and I, I'll, I'll be with you. Which would have been a lie. Because Ahimelech loves God. In this moment, he is loving God. And he is thinking of David. And he has forgotten himself. R.C. Sproul Jr. says, When we forget ourselves, we do find ourselves. When we die, we live. Again, the angle I'm coming at from today's text is how does the Christ follower not only survive, but maybe even thrive in the midst of a storm, and I'm speaking about a person as a storm, a person who has traveled down a path where there are people like Dog the Edomite who have joined forces with them, and there is gossip, there are lies, there is danger, there is, there is a lot of evil going on. Don't get sucked in to the storm. So we see how Ahimelech responded, speaking truth to power. Now in verses 16 through 17, we get to see how the one who has lost the anointing of God, in, in one sense is, is not the king from God's perspective, but from a functional day-to-day perspective, he, he's, he's got the throne, he's got the power. So how King Saul responds, look at verse 16. This is how he responds to the man of massive integrity. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side. The guys guys who were next to him were, were, were told at the beginning of this unit of scripture that he's holding his sword. He orders them, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Now, this is a brutal commandment. He, to, to, 
you know, this is like, you know, to contextualize this, to use our imaginations, like it's very easy to just roll over this. It's like you're at a pastor's conference, and, and the leader of the pastor's conference has given the order to one of the leaders at the pastor's conference to slaughter the pastors that are here. So turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, but they did not tell me. The paranoid man here. Power, power. Oh, how it can corrupt when it is your God, your idol. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Oh, thank you. Thank you, officials. The officials follow the lead of Ahimelech. We're not going to be a part of this evil. So, who does he go to? He goes to his man, Dog. He goes to his man, Dog. And we see what he does in verses 18 and 19. Let's go ahead and, and, and look at that together. The king then ordered Dog, you turn and strike down the priests. So Dog the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. 85 men who've been ordained for gospel ministry to contextualize it. Are these perfect men? No. These are men who are serving, they're sinners. But they are men who are serving the people of God in ancient Israel. And Dog slaughters them. They wore the linen ephod. Verse 19. He goes above and beyond. He also put to the sword Nob. That is the town, the community. The town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, the sheep. It doesn't say it in the text. I think Dog has servants of some sort. I don't know how he... Not only takes out 85 men, I guess it's conceivable he did that single-handedly. It's not really conceivable in my mind that he took out the entire community, the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, the infants, the children alone. But he was the leader. And he gets sucked in to the storm. Now this is hard. This is hard on many levels, verses 18 and 19. So my second of, of three points today is don't equate storm lethality with divine disinterest. For those of you who have no idea what that means, what I'm saying is that when you see something terribly wicked happen, don't conclude that God is out of this that God is not on his throne ruling. That, that God isn't sovereign over all things in some way. That, 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 that he's not with you. So when you see some relational storm or even some emotional harm, something just terrible and evil, many of you have seen or experienced part of a whole variety of of terrible things. You've seen it, relationally especially. And it's easy to conclude 
that God is not interested, that God isn't sovereign, that God isn't here with me. Don't conclude that. And I'm going to say a few more things about the complexity here, but how do we pray when we see some terrible evil going on, particularly when some, some, some human who is, I mean, if we turn back a few chapters who, who is serving Yahweh and, and is doing good, and now is doing this. I, I, I mean, how, how, do we, how do we process this? So we could pray Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. This is how we can pray when, when we see the storm around us and we, we feel it sucking us in. I sink in deep mire where, where, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You could see where the, the believing community, as their entire, the, 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 their group of shepherds have been slaughtered by the king in Baidog. You could see them weeping, missing people. Children, animals, infants, their spiritual leaders. You can see them praying Psalm 69. But don't equate the lethality, the death, the destruction, the evil with God not being interested in you and in this situation even. Now this difficult couple verses here is going to get more difficult now. Some of you may have already gone here. Those of you that are careful readers of the Bible and have been studying 1 Samuel, you might remember that there was a prophecy. You remember that prophecy way back in 1 Samuel 2 or 3? Anybody? There was a prophecy about the priests related to Eli. Do you remember that prophecy? That prophecy said that God was going to wipe out all the priests back in chapter 2 and 3. It's a long story, but to look at it in one verse, 1 Samuel 2.31, the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line. He's referring to the priesthood here. He's referring to Eli's family line and the wickedness of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And he's pronounced judgment. And that judgment has shown up in Dog, the Edomite, and in King Saul. So this causes a whole variety of, of challenges, I'm guessing, unless you are more sophisticated and thoughtful than I am. Like, God, how can this be? How could... How, how is the all-loving God, how, how, how could he prophesy, how could this be the fulfillment of prophecy? What Saul and Dog the Edomite have done. Now, if you want the shorter answer to that, it's I don't know. That's the short answer. But I think I do have a, a longer answer to help you out and to help me out. Talk to my wife briefly about this. And I, I, she doesn't know this, but uh, we had this conversation. I'm like, I, I, just to be like fully transparent here, I said, you know, I'm going to skip over this. 
No one's going to remember that. So I'm just going to skip over this. But I don't think the Lord wants us to skip over the hard things in Scripture. And this is a hard thing. So the careful reader would ask the question here, how does God have integrity? How is God a God of love? How, how could he prophesy that this was going to happen back when the Hophni and Phinehas stuff and Eli was going on? And, 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 and one answer is, I don't know. But this might help. Let's look at Acts chapter 4 together. It says, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. You see where I'm going here. Some of you see where I'm going. Pontius Pilate, bad dude. We, we can liken him to, to, to Saul at this point in his life to Dog the Edomite or Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, the slaughter that happened when Jesus was born. But this is the, the Herod who's ruling at the time when Jesus is about to go to the cross. They met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, and these people, with evil intent, conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. David is anointed. He points to the greater David, Jesus. And then this last sentence is huge. I think for us to have this massive high view of God's sovereignty, they... Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, that is the Pharisees and Sadducees and the, the rulers who were trying to cling to power, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. He's referring to the cross. If we go back to eternity past, it was decided that Jesus was going to come and redeem a people on a cross and die as our sin substitute. How did this come about? This came about by evil people deciding to kill him. How does this fit together? Again, one answer is, I don't know. But I brought it up to say, God is perfectly loving and absolutely, completely sovereign. And if we read the Bible carefully, we will see that he chooses to make the free decisions of evil people to accomplish his will. At the end of the day, we should be in awe of what he does. Whether it's how the cross came about or whether it's how this terrible event came about that was prophesied back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3. So again, don't equate storm lethality. There were a lot of bad storms in the hearts of Pontius Pilate and Herod and the wicked religious leaders in Jesus' day. God used the lethal storms in their evil hearts to bring about redemption and Jesus' death and then his resurrection three days later. This was part of the sovereign plan of God. So he is interested in you. He is interested in Ahimelech. He is interested in David. And he's interested in preserving the remnant of his people. And let's come back to our text and finish up the last couple verses here. And, and we'll, we'll be done. Just two more verses. So this great slaughter, but there's good news. We end on a good, good uh, say, say thank you, God. <laughs> We're ending with some good news here. So the priests are wiped out with the exception of one, Abiathar. 
But Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doug the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. So the reader here knows who's responsible for the death of of the whole family. It's Doeg. It's Saul that's responsible. It's not David. But you can identify with a godly person who says, yeah, when I went there to get bread because I was starving and I was hungry, I saw this dude there. He's a spy. I knew it was bad that he saw me. And now this has happened. So you could see where he would feel what we call false guilt in verse 24. That's what he's feeling. Had I not gone there to get some food, this wouldn't have happened. The reality is, Saul and Dog are responsible for this evil. In a mysterious way we can't understand, it's part of God's sovereign plan. And that should just give us awe for God that he prophesied that the priest would be taken out back in 1 Samuel 2 and 3. Back to verse 23, look what David does. He says to the one priest who makes it out, the young priest, Abiathar, Stay with me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what he needed to hear. What a friend. What a man David is. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. Final point today is don't stop serving others. In the midst of the storm, we see this again in today's passage. David is serving Abiathar. As David himself has been afraid, as David has been on the run, as David has been a fugitive, in the midst of that, he's called to be a leader of 400 men. Now he's called to shepherd and care for the one surviving priest. How does he do this? I'm going to turn again to one of his prayers. I'm not going to put on the screen, just listen. It's from... One of his prayers that came out of this unit of Scripture that we just went through. The title of Psalm 52 is this. Listen to it. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Dog the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So how does David respond in his heart When this happens, he prays. He needs God's grace. He himself is afraid. So he prays a preaching prayer to his own soul to nourish himself and to seek God's grace. Let me just read part of what he prayed in the context of what we just read about. Verse 6 of Psalm 52, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. The hymn there is is referring to Dog, it is referring to Saul, it is referring to any evil person that has power and money and prosperity and seems to be doing better than you or me. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. The last thing David is, is in a mood for is laughing at Dog or at Saul. So he is praying a prayer to give him perspective to see the emptiness of what they are doing. Verse 7, 
See the man who would not make God his refuge. See him. See Saul. See what he's doing. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. He's trying to find refuge by taking David out and maintaining power. Verse 8. But I, the believer, am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I don't know how he could allow this slaughter to happen. I don't know how, but I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait because the world is not as it should be or as it will be when Christ comes back. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of of the godly. That's how David doesn't get sucked in to the storm. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord Jesus, in the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard our souls. You alone are our anchor. When our sails are torn, your love surrounds us in the eye of the storm. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.